Have you ever stopped to consider the things that amaze us? We are amazed when a basketball player scores 51 points in a single game. We're amazed when a soprano can sing and sustain a high C for eight measures at eight o'clock in the morning. We are amazed when a young man bags a 12-point buck the first day he's in the tree stand. We're amazed when a seven-year-old can play flawlessly a box sonata. We're amazed when our children actually brush their teeth without being told. We're amazed when the sale at the mall is buy one, get two free. We are amazed when there's only a 15-minute wait at Logan's restaurant on a busy Friday night. And we are amazed when we actually get out of Helena without being stopped by a train. <laughs> when you stop and think about it, we are easily amazed. But have you ever considered the question, what amazes Jesus? The answer just might, well, frankly, amaze you. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Today we continue our sermon study in the Gospel of Luke in a series entitled Blessed Assurance. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 7. Let's begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, they said, because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself of a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. After Jesus had finished preaching his sermon, he entered the village called Capernaum. It's there where we're introduced to an anonymous centurion. A centurion was an officer in the Roman military with a hundred soldiers under his command. Now, oftentimes, a centurion was rather wealthy. Because the greatest army in the world in the first century paid their soldiers well. But to say that he was wealthy is not to imply that he was well respected. 
There are many people in the first century that regarded centurions as uneducated and uncultured. Yet even still, they were in a position of prominence and significance because they had a significant amount of wealth. So this centurion is there in the village of Capernaum. Luke tells us that he had a servant whom he valued highly, and the servant was sick. That said something about the value of people. It also said something about the character of the centurion. What I mean by that is that in the first century, slaves or servants were regarded as property. So if a farmer had a plow and that plow was broken, he would just throw it away and get a new plow. In the same mindset, if a master had a servant or a slave and that slave was sick and going to die, most masters would allow the servant to die and then go and get another servant. But this is a special servant. He's one who's valued highly in the eyes of his owner, the Capernaum centurion. So this tells us something about the worth of all people. Everyone intrinsically has value. But even more so, it says something about the compassionate character of this centurion. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I've got a servant and I value him highly. He's sick. He's not getting any better. He's about to die. What can I do? Luke says that the centurion had heard of Jesus. Certainly he had heard that Jesus was a miracle worker, a, a great preacher, a great teacher, he had probably heard the great stories of how Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind and he had healed the sick and he even fed the multitudes with a couple of crackers and sardines and that Jesus had said to a paralytic one day, get up, take up your mat and go home and the paralytic did it. And so he thinks to himself, Jesus is in my town, he's in Capernaum, I bet that Jesus can heal my servant. But he's in a bit of a dilemma. He thinks to himself, who would be the best individuals to go on my behalf and speak to the holy rabbi? And he quickly concludes that the best people to go talk to a Jewish rabbi would be elders from the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. And so that's what he does. He gets together a delegation of elders from the Jewish synagogue and he tells them his request and he wants them to go on his behalf and make the presentation to Jesus. Now I got to tell you, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, this Roman uh, soldier, this officer in the mighty military of the first century, he's not Jewish. He's probably undoubtedly a citizen of the Roman Empire. He is kind, but we don't know if he's all that religious. After all, uh, he may be a good person, but that's no guarantee he's a godly person. I mean, you know good people that aren't godly people, right? I mean, in this case, this centurion's a good guy. He's a moral man. He's got uh, compassion in the fiber of his being, but that's no guarantee that he is a godly man. So he thinks to himself, the best people to go on my behalf as my advocate, as my delegation, is to send a group of the best of the best of Judaism. So he gets together the elders from the synagogue there in Capernaum. And he says to them, I want you to go get Jesus to come and heal my servant. 
That statement astounds me. He doesn't tell the delegation, I want you to go ask Jesus to give me a prophetic prognosis. He doesn't ask the Savior to submit a suggestion of what might possibly heal my servant. He doesn't even say, will you ask Jesus to give his professional opinion about the situation? No, this man says to the Jewish delegation, you go get Jesus, have him heal my servant. It's almost as if this Capernaum centurion believed that Jesus could fix it. Automatically, he just assumed, he just believed that Jesus can fix it. There are sometimes I wonder if my faith and your faith rises to the level of the centurion in Capernaum. Because I want to tell you this morning that regardless of the problem that you drag into the sanctuary today, I want you to know Jesus can fix it. Regardless of the problem that may drag you into the sanctuary today, I want you to know that Jesus can fix it. The Jesus that we serve is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. So I want you to know this morning that there is no problem that is too insurmountable for the Lord. There is no mountain too tall. There is no valley too deep. There is no, diagno no, no, no uh, prognosis that is too bleak. There is no cancer that is too incurable. There is no addiction that is too strong for Jesus to break. There is no marriage too broken for Jesus to mend. There is no prodigal that is too wayward for Jesus to retrieve. There is no relationship that is too destroyed for Jesus to mend. I want you to know there is no problem. There is no predicament. There is no prognosis. There is no crisis. There is no care. There is no concern that is too big for Jesus. Whatever you bring into the sanctuary today, whatever brings you into the sanctuary today, I want you to know that Jesus can fix it. There are some things in this world that your money can cannot fix. There are some things in this world that our military cannot fix. There are some things in this world your doctor cannot fix. There are some things in this world that lawyers cannot fix. There are some things in this world that teachers cannot fix. There are some things in this world that your parents cannot fix. There are some things in this world your charisma cannot fix. There are some things in this world your charm cannot fix. There are some things in this world your confidence cannot fix. But this morning, I want you to know that whatever brings you into this place today, there is nothing that our Jesus cannot fix. Whatever you bring, my friend, whatever brings you, my friend, there is nothing that Jesus cannot fix. This is the foundation of the great faith of the Capernaum centurion. He says, I want you to go get Jesus because he can fix it. Have him come heal my servant. And so the delegation went to find Jesus. He was in the city limits of Capernaum, and they got there, and they royally botched the request. Did you hear what they said? They went up to Jesus, and they explained the situation. They said, Jesus, we've got a friend. Um, he is a centurion living here in Capernaum. Um, he's got a servant that he values highly. That servant is sick, about to die. 
And he gathered all of us, the elders of the Jewish synagogue here in Capernaum, and he wanted us to come on his behalf and request for you to heal his servant. Now, furthermore, Jesus, we want to tell you um, that we really think you need to do this for him uh, because um, he is a friend of the nation and he has helped build our synagogue. So because of that, uh, he is in line for uh, this blessing and preferential treatment. So what we want you to do is drop everything that you're doing and come and heal this servant of the centurion because this centurion deserves this blessing. Did you hear what they said? They said, Jesus, this man deserves this blessing. This man has earned this privilege. This man has done things that demand this perk. Why? Well, he loves Israel. He's a friend of the nation. And he has given a lot of money to the Together We Build program of the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. He's helped build our synagogue. That's what that means. This man has deep pockets, and he has been very generous to us. He's a person of significance. He has an, an entitlement. This is coming to him. He deserves this. Why? Because he likes us. Why? Because he's given a lot of money to build our church. So Jesus, he has earned this right for you to come and heal his servant. Can I be transparent? I am really surprised that in that moment, Jesus did not just puke. I mean, he just didn't vomit right there. Because if anybody should correct them, it's Jesus. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible reason for you to come and demand a blessing from the Lord. You know, I realize that we live in an entitlement society. I don't have to convince any of you that in 21st century America, that people just feel entitled to certain privileges and rights and perks and handouts and helps. But this is nothing new. It's been around forever, this, this mentality. It, it sometimes even seeps its way into the church. I mean, that's what this delegation of Jewish leaders, that's what they say. That's their argument they say this man deserves it. He's entitled to it. Why? Because he likes us. Because he's a friend of a nation. Because he loves Israel. And he's got a lot of money. He's a significant person in the community. And he was our top donor for the Together We Build program. So we've got a plaque with his name on it. So we've got to help him out. This same entitlement mentality even comes in the 21st century church you say how how is that possible pastor well i'll tell you how it's possible because the moment we begin to uh, make arguments for ourselves arguments that kind of go like this well you know we've been here for 50 years we've been in this church all our lives we we've been sunday school teachers for the last quarter of a century I've served as a deacon. I've served uh, 
on every committee under the sun. I've chaired most of them here in the church. I sing in the choir. I, I give to every program that comes along. And so we begin to think to ourselves because of who we are, because of what we've done, because of how much we've given, because of a, a significant uh, contribution that we've made, that somehow we're entitled to significance, that somehow we're entitled to a place of prominence, that somehow we're entitled by God and by his church to give us a blessing. And can I tell you that when we begin to have that mentality, God the Father wants to vomit. He thinks to himself, what? You, you think you deserve a blessing? Can I just be honest with you? I don't want God to give me what I deserve. I really don't. I don't want to try to barter with God and try to demand of him, this is what I deserve because of A, B, C, X, Y, Z, everything I've done for you. Because regardless of how I make my argument, regardless of how I make my case before the Lord, what I deserve from God is an eternity's worth of holy hostility and wrath because of my sinfulness. That is not preacher talk. That's really good theology. We deserve to be separated from a holy God because we are unholy. And in his grace and in his mercy, he has given us salvation, a free gift. Jesus died in our place. He took the whipping we deserved. He drank every last drop of God's holy hostility that should be meted out and poured out upon you and upon me. And in a three-hour window on that one Friday, Jesus took our hell for us until the point where he declared it is finished. He gave up his ghost. He died. He was placed into our tomb. And on the third day, on Resurrection Sunday, on the third day, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose up with all power, healing in his wings. And he says, I give you innocence in the sight of God. I give you salvation both now and forevermore. I give you my righteousness that now belongs to you. You are clothed, not in your works. You're clothed, not in your own righteousness. You're clothed, not in your good deeds, but you're clothed in the righteous attributes of Christ himself. Oh, my friends, I don't want God to give me what I deserve. But the Jewish elders, they pleaded. And they were sincere. They were earnest in their plea. This man deserves to have you come. Heal his servant. The most astounding part of the story is that Jesus actually goes. He shouldn't have gone. He should have stayed right there in the city streets of Capernaum and said, uh-uh, I'm not going there for that reason. But he goes. Why? Well, he's a very gracious, tender Messiah. Apparently, the Capernaum centurion had sent some of his own people with the Jewish delegation. I come to that conclusion because if you read between the lines of the text, apparently... Some of the centurion's own people must have heard what went on, ran back to their friend, the centurion. They got to the house and they said, you won't believe how badly they messed that up. I mean, they went on and on and on about how you deserve for this to happen because you're a friend of the nations and because you've given so much money and blah, 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 blah. 
I mean, they royally messed it up. And now Jesus is on his way. He's actually coming to your house. He's going to come. He's on his way. What do you want us to do next? And so if you look at the text, it says that then he sent his friends to Jesus. It's a second delegation. It's a second group. He sends his friends back to Jesus. And before they leave the house, he says, guys, let me tell you exactly what to say. You quote me verbatim. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. This is what I mean. And he spoke it, gave it to them, and off they went to catch Jesus. They caught Jesus right before he was coming down the street where the centurion lived. And the friends came to Jesus. And by this time, there's a buzz in the crowd. I mean, those, the Jewish delegation, they're right there. Because they've thought to themselves, we've now stiff-armed Jesus, and now he's doing what we want him to do. He's going to this house. And as they walked, they began to talk to all the neighbors and the citizens of the town. Say, hey, come, look at this. Look, look what we made Jesus do. And so there's a big crowd that's beginning to develop. The friends, the second delegation, they show up. They say, Jesus, we went back to our buddy, the centurion. We, we told him that you were on your way. And this is what he said for us to tell you. He says, and I quote, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Did you hear the word he used? The very same word that the Jewish delegation had said, he deserves this to have. He says, no, no, no. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. It's not that I, I'm ashamed. It's not that I'm embarrassed of you, but I'm, I'm a man under authority and I know that you have authority I mean I've got a hundred soldiers under my command I tell this one go and he goes I tell this one come and he comes I tell this servant do this and he does it so Jesus all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed in so many words what he's saying is Jesus you don't have to be in the house to be over the house you you, you just say the word and by your authority, by your power, it will happen because you have all power and all authority in your hands, in your body, in your voice, in your thoughts. You say it, it will take place. And Jesus, Luke says, was amazed. What's he amazed at? Is he amazed at the size of the crowd? No. Is he amazed at the prospect of a great miracle? No. Is he amazed at his ever-growing popularity because he was a living legend already by this time? No. What's he amazed at? He's amazed at the great faith of the centurion. This is the only time in the New Testament where we are told that Jesus is amazed at something. He's amazed at the great faith. He says to the crowd, I've never seen such great faith even in all of Israel. Who's in the crowd? Well, part of the crowd is the first delegation of the Jewish head honchos who are there. They're still there. They're still thinking that Jesus is doing what they want him to do. And so the Jewish delegation is still in the crowd. And Jesus looks at them. <laughs> he looks at them. And he says, I haven't found such great faith even in all of Israel. <gasps> they were flabbergasted. What? We are the people of God. We're the people of faith. Jesus says, no, no. You want to see a picture of faith? Look at this Gentile 
soldier. Not even Jewish. L look at this one who's of Gentile descent, a citizen in the Roman Empire. You want to see a picture of faith? Look at him. I've not seen such great faith even in all of Israel. So he disperses the crowd. When that second delegation, the group of friends, when they make their way back to the home of the Capernaum centurion, Luke says the servant was healed. It's the last line of the last verse of the passage. This is not a story about a miraculous healing. It's not a story about the great healing of the servant. I mean, that happens, but Luke kind of mentions it as an addendum at the back of a book, like a P.S., postscript at the end of a letter. Oh, by the way, Luke writes, that servant was healed. How? Well, Jesus permitted it. He, he said, let him be healed, and he was healed. And Jesus didn't have to even be in the house for it to happen because Jesus is never outside of his jurisdiction. He's never out of bounds. He's never beyond his ability. So he just said the word, and the servant was healed. And we are told that Jesus was amazed at the great faith of the centurion. So that begs the question. The question is, what is great faith? And this morning, I want to give you a simple definition of great faith. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Are you ready? Here it comes. I think that from this story, this is great faith. Great faith is believing that Jesus has the power to fix it, even though you don't deserve it. From this story, that's great faith. Jesus has the power to fix it, even though I don't deserve it. That's what this man demonstrates. He doesn't demonstrate a haughty, uh, arrogant demeanor where he says somehow because of what I've done that somehow I have a prerogative before the Lord or I need this preferential treatment. He says, no, Jesus, you have the power to fix it, but I don't deserve it. If you fix it, it'll be for your glory, not mine. If you fix it, it'll be for your reputation, not mine. If you fix it, it'll be because you want to. And even if you don't fix it, that doesn't diminish your dominance in my life and in my home. So Jesus, you have the power to fix it, even though I don't deserve it. This is not the only person of great faith in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples rather quickly. Abraham was a man of great faith. Abraham and Sarah wanted to have a child. They waited some 25 years before the bouncing baby boy Isaac was delivered. And after enjoying Isaac for the better part of a decade, maybe 12, 13 years, the word of God comes to Abraham, take your one and only son Isaac, go to Mount Moriah, and there sacrifice him unto me. Abraham is not portrayed as denying God, debating God, or disagreeing with God. He loads the saddle. He gets the servants. He gets his son, the wood, the fire, the knife, everything that's needed. Off they go. They get to the place where Mount Moriah is in vision, eyesight. And Abraham says to the servants, you wait here for the boy and I are going to go worship. We will worship and we will come back. And Abraham and Isaac make the journey up Mount Moriah. And Isaac realizes that there's the fire and there's the wood and there's the knife, but where is the lamb? And Abraham has great faith. 
In his actions, by his words, he's saying, Jesus has the power to fix this even though I don't deserve it. So my son, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. They make their way to the top of the mountain. Isaac voluntarily lays himself on the altar. He knows what's about to happen. Father Abraham raises the dagger in the air. The blade is shaking against the sun in the sky. And right the second before, he thrusts the knife into the chest of his one and only son. One fatal blow. It is God's angel who speaks. Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you will not withhold anything from me. Not even your one and only son, Isaac. And Abraham looks up, and there is a male lamb, a ram, caught in the thicket. He replaces the ram for Isaac, and the ram is the substitute. And Abraham had great faith. What did that look like? It meant he believed that Jesus has the power to fix it, even though he doesn't deserve it. Moses is a man of great faith. You know, Moses' life is about 120 years. It's clearly uh, three sections of 40. For the first 40 years, Moses thinks he's a somebody. And then he commits murder and has a rap sheet, runs for his life, and for the next 40 years, he realizes he's a nobody. But then for the last 40 years of his life, he learns what God can do with a nobody as he makes him into a somebody. Moses is the young age of 80. He finds himself on the backside of Mount Horeb. He's following a bunch of woolly creatures, sheep, that belong to his father-in-law, Jethro. And as the seasoned shepherd is watching the sheep, he sees a brush fire. It's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Now that catches the eye of Moses. He goes over, and from that vantage point, God speaks to him. Moses, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. And so Moses, in obedience, takes off his sandals and he stands there. And from that burning bush, the Lord says to Moses, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go down to Pharaoh. I want you to declare, let my people go. And Moses gave every excuse in the book of why he was not the right one for the task. Have you ever looked like Moses? I have. God, I can't do that. God, I can't say that. God, I can't go there. God, I can't go across the room and speak to that individual. Lord, I can't, I can't, I can't. And the Lord says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You may not be equipped, uh, but I will equip you. So you go. And Moses is obedient. And sure enough, he goes down, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. (laughs) Takes a while, but eventually, the Israelites are set free and brought to the promised land. And all the while, that 120 years, Moses demonstrated great faith. What does that look like? It meant that Moses believed that Jesus has the power to fix it, even though I don't deserve it. He thought about that as he stood before the Red Sea with that great sea in front of him and Pharaoh's arm behind him. Jesus, you got the power to fix this, even though I don't deserve it. As he's wandering around for some 40 years and people are wah, 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 wah. I mean, they're kind of complaining all the time. And he's just asking God, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you leading us? Where do you want us to go? All the while, Jesus, you have the power to fix it even though I don't deserve it. He's a man of great faith. You fast forward to the New Testament. James and John. Peter and John have great faith. Peter goes up to a man who's crippled says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I 
have, I freely give you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And that crippled man who was placed in front of the gate at the temple for the very first time in his life jumped to his feet. For the first time he was able to go into the worship service because now he was no longer blemished. And he walked in, and you know, in church you're not supposed to make a lot of noise, right? You're supposed to be quiet and silent and reverent. Well, this guy made no small commotion. He hoops and hollers and runs and jumps and skips and probably does cartwheels all over the place. Woohoo! I can run! I can walk! I'm in worship! Right? This caught the attention of the leaders, and they got the Roman rulers. They came in, they arrested Peter and John. The next day, these two apostles stood before the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin gave this verdict, you must no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They said, huh, that's funny. Should we obey God or obey men? I'll tell you what, I think we'll obey God. Because we have seen too much and we've heard too much to be silent. We are not going to be guilty of the sin of silence. You cannot keep us silent. I guess you can decapitate us. I guess you can put us in jail forever. But even if you put us in jail, we're still going to sing, shout, and praise God's holy name. And so they said, we cannot be silent. We've got a bad case. I can't help us. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and about what we've heard. They had that much boldness, that much courage. Why? Because they had great faith. Jesus, you've got the power to fix this even though we don't deserve it. You can get us out of this mess, but you don't have to. You can fix it, even though we don't deserve it. Let me give you one more story. This one is a friend. His name is Dallas. When I knew Dallas, he had twin sons that were seniors in high school. Dallas had a good job, but he needed a better job. And his boss came to him and made a proposal that was a significant raise. But this new job would require more responsibilities, more time, and more travel. So Dallas and his wife thought about it and prayed about it. He came to me, asked me to join him in prayer. Said, you know, on Monday I've gotta go back to my boss and I've gotta tell him my answer. And I said, I, I, he said, I don't know what to do because on the one hand, the extra money will come in handy, especially next year when we're trying to put two boys through college. But on the other hand, I'll miss their senior year. I won't be here for their activities. I'll be away from my wife. I'll be away from my family. I don't know if that's good. I don't know if God wants me to do that. I need you to pray. Okay, so we prayed. Well, it came time for him to stand before his boss. He was seated there across the desk. The boss filled out all of the uh, contract, the proposal, slid it across the table, and Dallas looked at it. And slid it right back, unsigned. The boss said, what are you doing? He said, I can't do it. I appreciate it. It's an honor, but I need the money, but I, uh, I can't have this much time away from my wife and my kids. My boys are seniors in high school. I can't miss this. The boss said, you don't know what you're doing. Do you realize you will never have an offer this good? ever again from this company and probably no other company? Dallas said, yes, sir, I know. He got up and left. It was about a month later. Dallas called me. He said, guess what? I just got a proposal of another job. This other job has more money, closer to home, and no travel. I said, bless his holy name. 
That may not always be your story, but that's Dallas's testimony. He was a man of great faith. All the while, he prayed. He said unto the Lord, Jesus, you've got the power to fix this, but I don't deserve it. I don't know if Jesus looks at me and is amazed at my faith. But I can tell you this much. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He may not be amazed at me, but I can tell you this morning that I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. But oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me my friend i don't know the problem that you bring into the church i don't know the i don't know the uh, the problem that brings you into church but regardless i want you to know that jesus wants you to have great faith what does that mean it means that you believe that jesus has the power to fix it even though you don't deserve it Amen. so this morning have great faith in god this morning, have great faith in God. Maybe it's the faith to believe that he can give you salvation regardless of your past. Maybe it's the faith that says, Lord, I've got this predicament, I've got this problem, and it is consuming me. And maybe you just need to come and kneel here at the altar. Whatever it is you bring, whatever brings you, you come, lay it right here. And I want to tell you, Jesus has the power to fix it. He can do it, even though you don't deserve it. But if he doesn't fix it the way you want him to, that does not demote him in your life. He has the power to fix it. Maybe you're here today, and God is drawing you. You need to come and join this church God wants to grow your faith in this faith family. As God leads us, may we respond with the only thing that amazes Jesus. Great faith. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Have your way in our hearts and our minds. Speak to us. Let us be real with you as you are real with us. May we be people who believe, Lord Jesus, that you can fix it, even though we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray.